You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. And now for a taste of things to come. I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> All right, go ahead and turn this up a bit. This is like a little tiny song. I love this song. Back in the 90s, Mortal Kombat, the movie, was a major disappointment. <laughs> but the soundtrack was awesome. I love this song right here. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, we uh, started off our youth group with different songs, and uh, we often started with Mission Impossible. And then uh, we would start uh, announcements with that song. And now, a taste of things to come. And, you know, anyhow, loved it. Love that song. Think it's great. Today, we are going to wrap up our series on the Minor Prophets with a message called, A Taste of Things to Come. And we have been looking through the Minor Prophets uh, through the summer. And uh, the Minor Prophets, it doesn't mean that they're minor importance. In fact, their messages are major. Minor just means that they're smaller. They're often the uh, the forgotten prophets. They're the ones that get your kids' names. Uh, but you don't know anything about their story. Today is a is a unique and uh, very, um, I'm, I'm excited about this particular prophet. Uh, the name is Zechariah, and it has been an adventure. Here's the background a little bit of what's been going on over the summer. We've been following the backdrop of the story of the kingdom that fell. How God established a people after he brought them out of Egypt, established them as a people in a nation of their own, uh, and they called themselves Israel. After several kings, they, uh, they became corrupt uh, with themselves and with God. They uh, started a civil war with each other. They divided into two kingdoms. The north took the name Israel. The south took the name Judah. The south is where the capital was of Jerusalem. And uh, Jerusalem was the place where God had called them to build a temple. There'll be a light to the world and a standard of God's purity for all to see. Well, the kings of the north and the kings of the south were evil. And they constantly were falling. The north was worse than the south. The south actually had a few good kings. Well, eventually, the north fell completely. Hundreds of years later, the south fell completely. And the south did not rise again until now. They were carried off into uh, captivity by a group of people called the Babylonians by Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, they were taken as slaves and exiles. The temple was completely destroyed. The entire city of Jerusalem was, was, uh, was leveled. And they cried out to God, help us, save us. God, why? The story picks up there last week where God begins to send these series of prophets throughout that story. But after 70 years, a young man stood up and asked if he could go back and take some of his own people to rebuild their homeland. The king, King Cyrus, said, you can go. 70 years later, thousands of people, after spending generations in exile in a culture that was not their own, in a faith that they had forgotten, they journeyed back from a pagan land to build Jerusalem again. God sent two prophets to talk to him during that time. Haggai, who we looked at last week, and Zechariah, where we're going to end this week. 
Now, the very last prophet in the Minor Prophets is a book called Malachi. We did a whole series on it in February, so we're not going to cover that in this series. So if you want to know more about Malachi, go back to February's notes on our online uh, website resources, and uh, you can hear the whole Malachi series. I think Zechariah is a great place to end. Um, wondering about their future, God says, I got you covered. So let's, let's start right there. Zechariah is probably the longest. It is the longest of all the minor prophets, 14 chapters. It could be its own series. We're going to do a flyover. He was the grandson of a, a, grandson of a priest named Ido. Yeah, I don't think anybody's ever going to be naming their kids Ido. Um, here we go. Zechariah 1.1. We're going to do a flyover. Uh, this is a mirror of the Messiah. What Zechariah does, he begins to prophesy and encourage them. And everything he says mirrors the Messiah. Uh, this was in November of 520. How do we know? Because it says so in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And in their calendar, that would be our November of 520 BC. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. By the way, the word Zechariah means God remembers. And this is a continuing theme through this whole book because they're wondering, God, we have left you. God, we are coming back. And uh, Lord, we, we were leveled. Are you still there? God, do you remember us? And God raises up a prophet whose name means God remembers you. I love that. Powerful theme here. You are not forgotten. So Zach challenges the people to finish this temple that they went to build. Haggai really got into it last week. And he says, know that God is not finished with you. Finish the temple, but I'm not finished with you. That's the message of Zechariah. I love that. God is preparing them once again to bring forth a Messiah. Now, here's what's important. And a lot of people wondering, and they've asked, are the Jewish people the chosen people of God? Yes, they are. What does that mean that they are chosen? Does that mean that they are, um, that they have special rights and privileges in the world, that does that mean that every Jewish person has a one-way ticket to heaven? Whether they're an, by the way, 90% of Jewish people are atheists, but because they are the chosen people, does that mean they got a, they get a one-way ticket to heaven? If they're an Orthodox Jew, if they practice the Old Testament, do they get a one-way ticket to heaven because they're the chosen people? Not at all. That's not what it means. When it says that they are chosen, that means God chose them. If, if you read the promise to Abraham, he says, I'm choosing you to be a light, to bring life to the Gentiles, to the world, that you will bring forth a generation that will outnumber the stars, that will outnumber the grains of sand on the beach, and you will be a light to the world that will bring hope and peace and save the world. And because I'm choosing you, I'm going to bless you along the way. What they were chosen to be is the bringers of the Messiah. They were the group of people that God said, you're the race, you're the people, you're the ones that will give the world their savior. You are chosen by me to bring us the savior. So God dealt specifically with them because that was the chosen people to bring us a savior, to bring us the Messiah. So God had high standards on them. He had very specific things he'd called them to do to prepare them and to prepare us. And whenever they failed, he disciplined them swiftly because he had chosen them to bring forth the Messiah. So he gets them back in their land. Zechariah says, I want you to finish the temple because it's a picture of what is to come. And he says, and God is not finished with you because from you, you are still chosen to be a light 
to the world, to bring the nations to their knees. So this is what it says, verse 2. With that in mind, he says, the Lord was very angry with their ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. It starts with a challenge. Seek God. Get your life right. This is where everything begins. This is where real life starts, right there. He says, do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen. Talking about their ancestors. Your ancestors did not listen, or did they pay attention, declares the Lord. And where are they now? He says, where's your ancestors now? He says, they're dead. Where did it get them? They didn't obey me. Where did it get them? It didn't get them here. Your parents, he said, died in Babylon. He says, where are they now? And where are the prophets? Do they live forever? Even the ones who lived for me. He says, where are they now? He says, we're all going to have our day where you stand before me. Doesn't matter who you are, whether you lived for me or not, God says, or whether you followed me or not, God says, you are going to have a day with me this day. This life will come to an end. He says, but they, your ancestors, did not my words. They did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, to overtake your ancestors. And he says, this is it. This is how the people responded after God says this. He says, then they, the people in Jerusalem, those that went back, the exiled ones who returned, he says, they repented and says, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. That means he sent us in the exile to kind of put us in the corner for a while so we'd come to our senses and repent and come back. And this is where they are. And I want you to realize this. What we're going to do in Zechariah is we're going to fly over, and I'm going to give you some big themes that were in Zechariah. But we're going to look at the biggest theme, and that is the Messiah. Jesus is in every chapter of Zechariah. It's the most messianic book in the entire uh, Old Testament. In fact, no other book in the Old Testament talks about Jesus more than Zechariah. It is one of the most unique powerful, uh, gives us the entire life of Jesus in the Old Testament. The entire life, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection and his return. But he starts off with saying this. I want you to write this down. You don't have to end up how you grew up. This is the first thing he says. He says, I'm so angry at your parents. And he says, and don't be like your parents. All right, some of you, you had great parents. And they modeled things for you and you want to be them. And some of you got to saying, don't be like your mom and dad. Don't be with God uh, the way that your parents were with God. He says, you don't have to be that person. He says, you don't have to end up how you grew up. God has called you to be what he's called you to be, not what others say you are to be or what your family tree says you've been. He basically says, Don't be like your parents, but seek God for yourself. You can't piggyback your faith on your mom and dad or on your kids or on your grandparents. My dad was a preacher. Well, it doesn't matter. My my parents go to church every week. It it doesn't matter. What about you? Where are you with God? The the, the declaration of the very first part of, of Zechariah is you need to discover God for yourself. You can't rest on the life of those you grew up with, good and bad. If your parents were awesome with God and great and lived for him, it doesn't mean that you and God have a relationship. 
And if your parents were horrible parents and they had nothing to do with God and you were raised in an ungodly home, which is probably almost all of us, because 85% of homes are now considered dysfunctional. What? That means if you had good parents, you're rare. You're a rare commodity in the kingdom. You know what? But God says, you don't have to end up the way you grew up. And I love that. He says, don't be like your parents. Be better. Be who God's called you to be. Don't be who they think you are. Be who I think you are. That's what Haggai was all about last week in their identity crisis. So three months later, Zechariah gets another message. In February of 519, three months later, he says this, on the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, that's February, that would be our February. Um, In the second year of Darius, that's 519 BC, um, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Berechiah. I was thinking of that all week long. I was like, don't forget that. Barracuda. All right. It's a song. If you guys aren't sure of that, he's the son of Berechiah. the son of Ido, yeah. So Berechiah was the son of Ido, who was a priest. So what happens now is Zechariah breaks into what's called an apocalyptic style of talking and teaching. The apocalyptic style is a way that the Old Testament described big events, and they used big words. They used what's called a hyperbole, which is where they used examples. They used uh, um uh, they used comparisons that were massive and larger to what the actual event was doing, but it was a very literal event. For example, if you played uh, football, uh, if the Cowboys win this week, you might come back and go, man, they killed them. And somebody's like, what? <laughs> there should all be a prison. But they didn't actually literally kill them. That's a hyperbole. That's a big demonstrative word to emphasize that they really beat them. Well, Somebody will beat them, the Cowboys, that is. Um, It says, it resembles Revelation and Daniel. In fact, it's the apocalyptic style. Uh, This is the most messianic book in the Old Testament. It's often the most often quoted book in the New Testament. And um, as we read this, I want you to know that some of this is literal and some of it is figurative. In fact, the angel that he's about to talk to tells them that these are figures or symbols. And throughout the whole thing, God says, this is a symbol for this. So these symbols are literal or real events that God uses to tell through a symbol. All right. Now, I know it's hard to wrap your head around and it can be very confusing. Zechariah, like Revelation, is one of those books that is debated, that is uh, argued over. And uh, you might even have different views of it, uh, but that's okay. Because as long as we stand on the banner of Jesus, uh, which Zechariah does clearly, we can even disagree about some of the things. But let's jump in. He says, visions in the night began, verse 8. He says, during the night I had a vision. And there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. And behind him were red, brown, and white horses. And I asked, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking to me said, I'll show you what they are. And then what begins to happen for the next six chapters are these revelation-like type visions. I'm just going to fly over some of them because I want to get the major points and give you the big pictures of Jesus throughout the whole thing. 
in chapters 1 through 2, the vision is this picture of four horns. And these four horns were the four nations that attacked them. And then he says there are four blacksmiths preparing these four different colored horses as God is preparing to bring peace. And then that there is a land surveyor who's measuring out the property of Jerusalem because God is preparing the land once again to be uh, lived in because the Messiah is coming. So for two chapters, he says, hold on, because I am with you. I have not forgot you. I have brought you out. I put you back in. I'm surveying the land. The Messiah is coming. In chapter three, the high priest, there were two leaders at this time. One, his name was Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the greatest name of the entire Old Testament. And uh, we talked about him last week. Zerubbabel was the governor governor. And uh, there was a high priest at the time. His name was Joshua, which in the Old Testament, it is the name Yeshua, which is the exact same name as Jesus. So there was a prophet. I mean, uh, there was the prophet Zechariah, who means God remembers. There was the governor named Zerubbabel, and there was the high priest whose name was Yeshua. So he says this in chapter three. Here's a highlight. He says, then he, the angel, showed me Joshua, which is Yeshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, the word Satan in the Old Testament is the only word that we have for Satan. It's the only word that's given, and that is the word in the Old Testament for Satan is the accuser or the one who is uh, who condemns you, the accuser. So this is exactly what Satan does. He says, the accuser was standing next to Joshua. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Rebuke you means get out of here, shut your mouth, don't say a word. It means the Lord rebuke you, Satan, rebuke you, accuser, shut your mouth, accuser. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, shut your mouth, means rebuke you. Satan can't stop God. God says, shut your mouth. It is not, is not this man, talking about Yeshua, Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire. He says, is Joshua not someone who has been saved from death? I have chosen them. Shut your mouth. I want you to write this down. This is a powerful theme through Zechariah. Is that Satan sees our sin and accuses us. God sees our sin and chooses us. And I love this because when Satan sees you, he says, you're dirty, you're filthy, you're ugly, you're gross, you're sinful. God hates you. That's what the devil will say. The devil will say, you've done too much. You've gone too far. Don't raise your hands. God won't accept your worship. When you stand before each other, the devil, the Satan of old is in your mind saying, You are nothing. You are nobody. Nobody loves you. Nobody cares for you. Nobody would want you. If people knew who you were, he accuses you and condemns you. God's response is, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth, devil. I have chosen this person. I have saved them from death. He goes on to say, now Joshua was dressed in filthy. The word there is vile clothes. And he stood before the angel The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. This is what God does to us. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I put fine garments on you. He says, I've clothed you in my righteousness. This is powerful. He says, 
If you will come to me, I will remove your sin, the vile things of your life, and I will clothe you in the righteousness of God. I will clothe you. This is not, he didn't say, take off your dirty clothes and put on clean clothes. He says, take them off and I will clothe you. Verse six, he says, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men. He said, you're men who are symbolic of things to come. It's powerful. He says, I'm gonna bring my servant, which means what he does now, he says, he talks, he talks about the Messiah. He says, Joshua, he says, what I'm doing to you right now and what I'm calling for your associates, the other priests, what I'm calling you to do when I'm asking you to take off your vile clothes and I'm clothing you in garments of righteousness. Remember, this is a vision that Zacharias saw. He says, when I clothe you in righteousness, he says, you are a symbol of things to come. And then he says this, he says, this is what's going to come. He says, I, he says, I'm going to bring my servant. That means he's talking about Jesus. He says, who is humble. And he says, he's called the branch, which means he's a growing real person who's reaching out beyond the depths of this earth. You see, when you see the word branch, you're going to see it twice in Zechariah. He calls the Messiah the branch. It means multiple things. It means number one, he's the fruit of this world to give life. Number two, it means he is a branch of the family of David. That means he's a real person. He's not a symbol. He's not a figurehead. He's not a myth. He's a real person who walked the planet, who's from the lineage of David. And he says, and this branch will be reaching out. As a branch reaches out, so will this humble servant be reaching. This humble branch. And then he says, he says, my servant, the branch, See, and he says, look again, he's a stone. He says he's an immovable foundation. He calls him a servant. He calls him a branch. He calls him a stone, talking about the Messiah. And he says, I have set, uh, I have set in front of Joshua. So we know that he's not talking about Joshua. He's talking about the Messiah who is to come. He says, Joshua, you, what I'm doing to you, you are a symbol of what is coming. The humble servant, the branch, the stone." Is coming. And he says, there are seven eyes on that stone, on that one stone. Seven eyes, that means facets or reflections. That means this is a God. The Messiah is God who knows all things. You cannot go where he cannot see you. This is a God who is omnipresent. So when he says the servant, when he says the branch, when he says the stone, he says, man, this is a humble branch, a real person who is God, who is omnipresent. And he says, and I will engrave an inscription on it. This says the Lord Almighty. He is, he is saying this stone is it. He says, I am engraving. I'm going to inflict cuts into this stone. I'm engraving into this stone. I'm going to cut into it just like the scars of Christ. He says, and I, after that, he says, I will remove the sin from this land in a single day. Whoa. He says, at that moment, at the moment of that inscription, at the moment of that cutting into, at the moment that the servant, the branch, the stone is cut into, sin in a single moment will be removed. That's powerful. He says, Joshua, you're a symbol of things to come. And not only this, Joshua bears the name of that Messiah. His name is Yeshua, and that's the name of Joshua which is Jesus. And I want you to write this down. We see Jesus, the Messiah, the forgiver of sins, 
throughout Zechariah. In chapter 4, he uh, gets a vision of, uh, of the temple menorah, the lampstand, that it is returning. And from this lampstand are two uh, pipes going to two olive trees. And he says uh, that the, these two olive trees represent Zerubbabel and Joshua, who are restoring and refreshing the kingdom, who are rebuilding the kingdom mission, and that they are going to finish the temple, and that it's not by might, not by power, but by my strength, says the Lord. That's in chapter 4. That's the most often quoted verse. In the Old Testament, from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Chapter 5, he says, Zechariah then sees a flying scroll about 30 feet long. And he says he also sees a woman in a basket with a lead lid on top of it. This is crazy. He says, I want you to know, he says, that flying scroll represents the word of God that's going to cleanse evil and purge evil through the declarations of its word. And he says, that basket that is being lifted from you and taken back, he says, that woman in that basket, by the way, women are evil because the angels that carried away are women in that passage. Uh, He said, but that woman in the basket, he says, she represents corruption and evil and the counterfeit faith in which you had before. And I'm removing it from you. He says, I'm preparing you for the Messiah. Chapter six, he says that he sees a chariot pulled by red Horses, black horses, spotted horses, depending on translation, some say gray. And he says, and white horses. God is bringing, he says, and establishing a mighty army to bring peace in the spirit realm and on this planet through the Messiah and led by the Messiah. And then the angel reveals another vision. Zechariah 6, he says, in verse 6, 9, he says, the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to me. He says, uh, Verse 10, take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobahah, and Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon, go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. By the way, these are all descendants of their old kings. So he says, go back to the last kings that were around. And he says, take the silver and gold and make a new crown. This is cool. He says, Take and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Yeshua, Joshua. This is highly unusual. You don't crown the high priest with the crown of the king. And he says, tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man whose name is the branch. He says, your name, Josiah, I mean, uh, Yeshua, your name, Yeshua, that's the name. Of the branch. I love that. He said, tell him, here is the man whose name is the branch, the reaching one, the Messiah. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Joshua is to build the temple as a symbol of what is to come. And he says, and this branch that is coming will build another temple. And guess what? The Bible says that if you've given your life to Christ, you're that temple. We are the temple of God, not built by hands, but by God himself. He goes on to say, he says, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and will be clothed with majesty. Talking about the branch. He will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. He says, and he will be a priest on his throne. He says, man, I'm raising up a whole new way 
of looking at this world. You see, this is the problem with a lot of people when they read the Bible and when they read Revelation. They think that God wants a king in Israel. God doesn't want a king in Israel. He's got a king. Jesus. There, we should not be seeking an earthly throne. We should be seeking the branch. He says, Joshua, he says, you are a symbol of what is to come. I want you to wear this crown and know that the branch will sit on a new type of throne where he will be both a priest and a ruler. He says, and there will be harmony between the two. Wait a minute. What does that mean? You see, the priest says, God, forgive us. And the ruler says, you are condemned. I must uphold justice and defend the righteousness of God. He says, so they're always at odds. God, forgive us lest we are condemned. And the ruler says, you need forgiveness lest I condemn you. And here comes This great prophecy of Zechariah saying they will be in union together. They will be one person and they will finally get along because the priest will pay the price of our sacrifice and be the ruler. He will be the judge and the justifier at the same time. I tell you, man, Zechariah is crazy cool. We see Jesus as the royal priest in Zechariah. I've got additional verses for you in your notes on your worship guide. I want you to check them out. Take the time to look them up. This is a picture of the coming Messiah who is both king and priest, who is both ruler and forgiver. All the visions declare God's plan to restore them and a promise to use them to bring the Messiah for the world. He transitions into their current situation and how it mirrors Jesus to future events for them, but past events for us. Near future events, the coming, the first coming of the Messiah. So two years later, by the way, two years pass. God doesn't talk through Zechariah until two years later. December 518, two years later, it says Zechariah 7-1, in the fourth year of King Darius, that's 518, the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month. That is in December, uh, our December 512, sorry, 518. He says the month of Kislev. He says, the people of Bethel had sent two people, uh, Shezer and Regimelech. Nice. Uh, together with their men. I wouldn't suggest that name for your kids. Um, you call them Reggie. Together, they were sent by the people of Bethel. That means the people who lived out there, the, the returned um, um, exiles. He says, they were sent to the temple to entreat the Lord. And this was their first problem. Um, you can't see God through somebody else. Um, you must go yourself. It's not through a parent. It's not through a pastor. It's not through a priest. It's not through any person. You must seek God for yourself. But this is what happened. He says, by asking the priest, he says, sit and entreat the Lord. By asking the priest, the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophet, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month? as I have done so for many years. You see, they've been exiled for 70 years. Their temple had been destroyed. Their whole order of faith was ruined. 
So for 70 years, they didn't have a temple. They couldn't do sacrifices. They couldn't follow God in any way that was uh, to what they were used to, to what their family and what God's word says. They were basically on their own. So they developed a new tradition where they would regularly cry and mourn and fast and weep for their old way and weep and cry out for their old life and weep and cry out for the holiness of God. And they developed this tradition Weeping for the loss of the old temple and the loss of their land and loss of uh, their family and weeping and fasting for they were in exile. So they asked, should we continue to do this? And I love the Lord, what he says. He says, in the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. He says, ask the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? He says, was it ever really about me? Because it appears that you only did it to make yourself feel better about your own sinful lives. He says, and when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourself? He says, man, when you're, when you're sad, you're just trying to make yourself feel better. When you cry out to God, you're doing it for yourself. Was it ever really about me? Were you ever really hungry for me? Because when things are going great, man, you're just fine. Yeah, you were exiled, and twice a year you cried out, God, help us. All right, the fast is over. Woo, let's party. And a lot of us, we do the same thing. We're like, God, Sunday morning, God, God. Monday, it's back to normal. It's back to your regular life. And God says, was it ever really for me? And so they were asking, God, should we continue fasting and mourning? I want you to write this down. Being religious does not erase past or current sins. The land they had, uh, sorry, they had begun fasting by their own design to make themselves feel better about their own sin. They were being very spiritual. God is not seeking our self-imposed religion. This is what God says. This is how he answers. By the way, it reminds me of Matthew 7, 21 where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. It's a reminder that how some might look good on the outside, but inside they're dirty. They're dirty inside. This is what God's answer to the question is. He says, I'm not about religion. In Zechariah 7, 8, he says, and the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. He says, administer. This is my response. You want to know? If you should be fasting and if you should be mourning, this is what I say. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. He says, you want to know what I want? I don't want your religion. He says this. I want you to write this down. I want justice. I want mercy. And I want compassion, not ritual. See, I'm glad that you're here today. But you know what God wants? He wants justice to be served out through our life. He wants mercy to be extended from our life. He wants compassion to be an outreach of our life. He doesn't want your attendance. When we gather together, it is a challenge to grow in God, to grow in his word, to extend the kingdom and to rally crying and maybe for you to invite somebody who doesn't know God. But this is not the best part of the week. Being a Christian is not about Sunday, it's about Monday. 
And what we do here is a rally cry to remember what we've been called to be. God says, I want justice and mercy. Zach says, faith without works is dead and works without faith is dead. Think about it. James 1.27 says that, that if we attempt to call ourselves believers, but we don't actually live out a life that does good to others, we are dead in our sin and we don't have God at all. In fact, he goes on to say in James chapter 2, he says that true and unadulterated faith in God is this. This is what it truly looks like when you know you're his. You care for the widow, you care for the orphan, and you stand unspotted. You stand out different from the world. This is the echo from Zechariah. Faith without works is dead, and works without faith is dead. In chapter 7, God goes on to say, That if you had followed me from the beginning, you would not have even been in exile and you wouldn't even have to fast. But you stubbornly turned your back, covered your ears to justice, to mercy, and to me. Listen now, verse 8, he says, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this declares the Lord. He says, I want justice. I want mercy. I want compassion, not empty rituals. Then Zach breaks into whole on full prophecy mode, future mode. Chapter eight, he says, but Jerusalem, you will be great again and you will bring forth a Messiah. After all you've done, I'm not finished with you. In chapter nine, he begins to talk about how the Messiah is coming. And on that day, the world will know salvation. Let's read a little bit of that in Zechariah 9, 9. He says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. He's talking about the people of Bethel, Jerusalem. He says, rejoice, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. The promise of the king. He says, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, the character of the king. He says, and I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. That means there'll be no more war. He says, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. He says, this is the work of the king to bring peace. He says, his rule will extend from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. This is the nature of the king. This is an eternal, this is God king. And he says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, because I've chosen you to be the blood offspring to bring us this Messiah, because of that promise I made with you, with Abraham, he says, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. That's the mission of the king, to set you free. He says in this passage, he gives us the promise of the king, the character of the king, the work of the king, the nature of the king, the mission of the king. This is what we see in Zechariah. We see a humble king. In fact, you might remember in the New Testament uh, when Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem the last week of his life on a colt, on a donkey. This is in fulfillment of this passage right here. You can find that in Matthew 21. Jesus fulfills the character, the work, the nature, and the mission, and the promise of the king. This is what Jesus has brought us, freedom. He goes on to say, verse 16, the Lord, their God, will save his people on that day as a shepherd. 
This is another word for the Messiah. He is a shepherd who saves his flock. They will sparkle in his hands like jewels in a crown. That's how God looks at you. He says, man, you're like a jewel in my crown. He says, when I look at you, when I have saved you, when I have called you, and when you have come to me and I redeem you and you become part of my family, when you become part of my fold and let me be your shepherd, he says, you will become like a sparkling, precious, priceless jewel in his crown. He says, how attractive and beautiful they will be. He's talking about us. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. That word grain there is a reference to bread. And he says, man, says the word of God will be a fire in our young men and our young women. Man, they will be filled with the new wine, which is the Holy Spirit. Man, I dream of that day, man. I, I believe we are in the midst of that now. We have some on fire young men and women in our church who, man, they love God's word. And these men and these young women, man, they are fed by the grain of God and these young men and women who are walking in the new wine of the Holy Spirit, he says, they are beautiful. He says, that is why I'm coming. In chapter 10, he says, Judah will be great again, and many will return from exile because I'm going to bring from you a nation that will bring us the Messiah. Zechariah 10, 4, he says, from Judah will come the cornerstone. Again, he says, the Messiah, the cornerstone, the firm foundation, the stone that all of life is built on. A cornerstone is the very first stone laid in the foundation. It is the most important, most confident, most secure source of foundation to build your life on. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one in which we build our life on. He says he will be the cornerstone. He says from him, he will be the tent peg. Now, you never heard of Jesus called a tent peg before. The Messiah, that means, uh, other translations say the wall peg. Basically, it is a hook that either tools are hung on, depending on translation, or the, uh, the peg in which the tent is secure. Either way, God is saying, I am a secure foundation of holding for you. He says, I am that secure tent peg, and from him, he will be the battle bow. That means he will be a mighty protector, and from him, he will be every ruler. That means you won't need a president anymore. You won't need a king anymore. You won't need anything. From him will be every ruler. He is. See, he designed, he wants to not just be our creator, the one that we acknowledge as God, but he is called to be our ruler in every area of our life. We see Jesus as our sure foundation. I want you to write that down. That's the next one. We see him as the sure foundation. The person of Jesus is fulfilling this Messiah as our cornerstone. In chapter 11, God says that corrupt leaders will be dealt with, but unfortunately they will rise up again and lead you astray again. And many of them will reject the Messiah. And then he says, on that day when they reject me, he says, I'll ask what I'm worth. And this is what they'll say, verse 12, uh, verse 12 of chapter 11. It says, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. He says, on that day when people reject me, I'm going to ask, what am I worth? And it says, so they paid me 30 pieces of silver, which is an insulting amount. It represents how low of a view these people had of God. He says, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That means throw it on the floor of the house. He says, the 
the so-called handsome price at which they valued me. That is sarcastic. He says, this is how little you think of me. 30 pieces of silver. I asked you to put a value on me. God says, I want you to put a value on me. And you gave me 30 pieces of silver. He throws it down. That's what I'm worth to you. And he says, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff called union, breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. In that chapter, he talks about two staffs that represent one of them, uh, the, uh, the covenant of God and one of them, the union of God. And he says, I broke them both because you are simple and you rejected me. And this is a mirror. We see Jesus as the one who is betrayed right here. You see, Zechariah gives us the entire life and story of Jesus. He says, this foretells of Judas who sold out the Messiah, who put a value on the Messiah of 30 pieces of silver. And once he came to his senses and he realized how worthless it was, the Bible says he threw it on the floor of the temple. And we now know that that money was collected. And it says that a field was bought, a field, a pasture was bought. And that pasture was called the potter's field in fulfillment of this passage. I have a question for you. What is your dollar amount of God? What value do you place on God? What is your indecent proposal? What is it that God can ask you and say, all right, how much am I worth? How much are you willing to give up for me? How much of your life are you going to give me? And if we give him anything but everything, he throws it in the field. We're no better than Judas. Next few chapters of Zechariah, he continues to unfold the day of the Messiah. He says, on that day, what day? The day the Messiah shows up and walks into the temple. He says, the day that Jesus comes. And it's a past event for us. It was fulfilled when Jesus came. It was a future event for them. He says, Zechariah 12, 10, he says, and on that day, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem on that day when he comes, a spirit of grace and supplication. Man, grace is walking onto the scene. He says, they will look at me They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. He says, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the day that he comes, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. And he says, families from all over will be crying out. This is interesting. He says, I will, and you will look upon me. I want you to notice this. This is God saying, this isn't just any man. This is me on the scene. He switches back and forth by saying, the Messiah is me, and the Messiah is him. It's the mystery of the Trinity of God. And he says, on that day, he says, you will look at me, the one you have pierced. I want you to write this down. We see Jesus is the one who is crucified right in Zechariah. Hundreds of years before the invention of crucifixion, Zechariah mentions the way in which he would be killed. Through piercings, through impalement. That's what that word means. He foretold his type of death. He says, on that day, Zechariah 13, when it says, on that day, a fountain on the day in which you betray me, on the day in which I am pierced, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. He says, man, when I am pierced, a fountain will come forth out of me. That's amazing. We sing that song about fountains. He says, man, on that day, I will be a fountain to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Zach goes on to say that on that day, God will then clean house and he will establish righteous standards among his own people. 
Zechariah 13, 70 goes on to say, On that day, awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me. Now, the word close to me is a, is a very special word. It means beside me or equal with me. Again, God is declaring, my shepherd will be slain, and it's me. He is equal. He is one with me. He is beside me. He is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. You see, God's plan was to have the Messiah struck down. Death was the plan. The cross is not a sad story. It's a story of victory. With every nail of those spikes, when blood came forth, it was a fountain of life to those that will believe. He says, this was the plan. I'm not looking for an earthly kingdom. I'm not wanting to actually build an earthly temple. That's just a symbol. That's a picture of what is to come. This role that you're in, Joshua, your very name is Yeshua. That is the name of the branch who is coming. And another temple, he will build that temple. But when he comes, he will be pierced. He will be betrayed. He will be crucified. And he will bring life and forgiveness to the world. Powerful. He says, he is close to me, declares the Lord. He says, strike the shepherd, beat him, whip him, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 26 when he says that when he is crucified, his disciples will scatter. He quotes this verse in Zechariah. Verse 80 says, in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in. This third I will put into the fire. That means I will test them, and I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. He says there will be those that will run away. There will be those that will fall away. There will be those among my own. The scatter will happen, but a third of them will return, and they will be tested, and they will become great witnesses. Guys, this is exactly what happened at the crucifixion. This is exactly what happened after Jesus' resurrection. Many of his disciples fell away. In fact, if we add up the numbers through the disciples that followed Jesus, there were thousands. And how many ended up on, in Acts chapter 2 uh, is about a third. And he says, and then will come great persecution. And you will be scattered, but you will be a fire tested and made pure. And he goes on to say, he says, um, he says then I will call on my name. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they say, the Lord is our God. I've got one chapter left that I'm going to share with you. But what he has done here, he's given us the picture of their current life being the future. And then he says, in the future, a branch, a shepherd will come. And he will be born and he will walk among you. He'll be of the family of David. And he will even have your name. Yeshua, he will, you'll know his name. You'll know where he's from. You'll know his, he's the line of the tribe of Judah. You'll know the family in which he'll be born in and of, and you'll see his life. He says, you'll see him grow the branch. You'll see him sprout. He says, then you'll see him betrayed. You'll see him crucified. You'll see him die for our sins. And a lot of people wonder, why in the world would God ever do this for us? Why would God Look at you and me and do that. This was 500 years before Jesus showed up. And this was the entire story of the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament was leading up to Jesus with glimpses of the Messiah. This is the, uh, considered one of the, this is the second to last book written in the Old Testament. And it is the richest book 
telling us that Jesus is coming. It's like Jesus was pictured, 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 pictured. And then he comes onto the scene because what he saw was you. The Bible says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He saw you. I want to play a video and then I want to end with the, uh, just to fly over the last chapter, which is the future return of Jesus. But I want, to, I want you to watch this video. I want you to know that when he comes, when he came, he had you in mind. He sees
To show you what love sees when I see I came to rewrite your story, to let his story be your story, his righteousness to be your righteousness. The Bible says he was crucified. That was the plan, to die for our sin, to take our place, to satisfy the justice of God and to be the forgiver of God, to be the royal priest. The Bible says he was laid in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again from the dead to prove it was true and to declare the righteousness of life to those that will believe. The Bible says that he ascended into heaven on a place called the Mount of Olives. Zechariah talks about that mountain. as a day and a place where Jesus will return. He transitions from talking about the mirror of the Messiah to the coming of the Messiah to the return of the Messiah. The last chapter of Flyover, Zechariah 14, when it says, in the day of the Lord is coming, that day, the day of his return, and he says, on that day, there will be a time when Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your vaults. He says, there's going to be a time, Jerusalem, when things are going to get very bad in this world again. It's going to get bad for you. He says, the, this, this whole life that I'm reestablishing again that will bring forth the Messiah, after the Messiah's first coming, there will be a time again where you will be in complete destruction again and you will be crying out to God. And he says, and just when you think all hope is gone, Verse three says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. Verse four, it says, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. He says, there's gonna be a day when the life of this world will get worse and when things will get worse for you, Jerusalem. He says, things will get bad. He says, but I'm not finished yet because I will return and I will stand on the very place, on the very mountain on which I ascended. I said I will return and I will return and my feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And I want you to see a picture of the Mount of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives today. It is basically a graveyard for about a, about 150 graves are right there on the Mount of Olives. And at the very top is a church, and next to the church, a hotel. I'm like, what? It's like, how crazy have we got? Yes, this is the place of his ascension, the place of his return, a place of worship, and a place to have a spa treatment. And he says, but this is the place I will return. This is the place of my arrival. This is the place where you will see me again. By the way, you see at the bottom this, this uh, 
building right here with the little point, that's the tomb of Zechariah. So I want to read the last few verses with some little help from some music. So if you could turn up the audio. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half to the west to the Mediterranean Sea. In the summer and in the winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name will be the only name. And on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and on the cooking pots and in the Lord's house and will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. That means I will be everywhere and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. That means this will be a daily event and on that day, there'll be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. That basically means there'll be a time when there'll be no more corruption. And that day is coming. Thank you. You can fade that out. Zechariah declares loudly and boldly, the Savior is coming to save and will return again to rescue. Jesus the Messiah is the voice of God in Zechariah, the righteous branch, the royal priest, the cornerstone, the humble servant, the one pierced, the sacrificed shepherd, the cleansing fountain, the returning and righteous almighty king. The Old Testament, they were to establish a temple. and the New Testament, Jesus established a society, the church, and today we are to establish the kingdom until the kingdom returns. The last thing I want you to know is until Jesus returns, we are the kingdom, we are the temple, we are Zion, we are the light of the world, called to walk in humility, called to walk in justice, called to walk in mercy, called to walk in truth, called to walk in compassion and hope. I want to end with the very first verse of Zechariah that we read in verse 3. He says, therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you says the Lord. So that's my prayer for you today is that you will see the glory of Jesus and that you will return to him or maybe for the first time turn to him and he will turn to you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Your word is amazing. God, it is it is the, it is a symbol of the picture of your divine hand. Well, the Bible is not a book written by men. Only it is a book written by men inspired by God. It is truly a book of wonder and miracles. God, I pray that you'd help us to find your hope, your truth in it. God, cause us to turn from our sin and turn to you. God, you will take off our filthy clothes and put on a robe of righteousness. Some of you here today, you feel vile like the clothes that Joshua wore. God says, put them off. Throw them off. Throw them at the feet of the cross. And God will clothe you with new clothes, with the clothes of righteousness, and he will call you his own. As we end our time this morning, and I'm going to hand it back over to the band. I'm going to ask Sean to come. We're going to just worship God with our giving. I want you to search your heart. I want you to find that place maybe where you need to say, God, here I am. (laughs) I need you. I need you. You here, I am in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.